Now, when starting this study, I told you about a time a while back when I was sharing with someone about Christ, and that person I was sharing with asked me an interesting question. She asked, why is it that Christianity is so widespread and embraced all around the world by people of all different nationalities? She asked me, how did something that started out as a Jewish thing become such a non-Jewish thing? How did these teachings that started out in the Middle East amongst a handful of Jews become a worldwide system of belief? How did it eventually make its way here to, to you and to me? And that's a good question, isn't it? How would you answer that question? What if someone were to ask you, why are there followers of Christ in Texas? How and why did God's word spread to us? How did you come to embrace this system of belief that started out with a group of Jews all the way across the world in Jerusalem? Well, hopefully you're better equipped to answer that question now, right? Since we've been studying through the book of Acts, because in the book of Acts, we get our answer. In this book, we come to understand how and why we're here, why there are churches everywhere in most countries across the world and in most cities in the U.S. We learn in this book that the reason why is because the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of David, the God who sent Jesus is a God who wants to be known and worshipped where he is not known and worshipped. And we learn in this book, the book of Acts, that our God is actively involved in making this happen. He starts in Jerusalem amongst a handful of Jews and works in and through them and the gospel spreads and he draws people to himself all throughout this city and then persecution hits and God's people get scattered and we learn that God works in and through that persecution to spread his gospel and to advance his kingdom elsewhere onto Judea and Samaria and when we get to Acts chapter 10 we see the final door to God's gospel swing open the first door to open was with the Jews. The second was with the Samaritans. And now here in Acts 10, we have the door opening to the Gentiles. And notice who God uses to open that door. He uses Peter once again. Now this is significant. In Matthew 16, 19, Jesus tells Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And we learn in Scripture that the key that Peter was, was given is God's gospel message. We, we learn here that he uses Peter preaching and teaching this message to open the doors for his kingdom to advance. And the gospel is, is the key that, that opens this door. The first door opens to the Jews in Acts chapter 2. After Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, the door opens for the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. No, Philip was the one who got the ball rolling here. We, we are told that they had received the word of God before Peter and John arrived. Remember, we're also told that the Samaritans did not receive the Spirit of God right away that doesn't happen until 
Peter and John arrive on the scene. And when they come to Samaria, we're told, he, Peter, came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. And so they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So the gospel spread from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria, and Peter plays a pivotal role in each of these works. And as we're going to find this week and next week in Acts 10, we are going to see the final door open to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles, and Peter is the one, once again, surprise, surprise, God is going to use to open this door. I love this chapter, folks, and so should you. You know why? Because we're Gentiles. We are non-Jews. And this here is a non-Jewish church. And here in Acts 10, we have our beginning. Here we see the beginning of the fulfillment of all that Christ said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Here we learn why, why there are churches all throughout the U.S., all throughout the world, made up primarily of Gentiles. So this account here in Acts chapter 10 is a vital part of our History. Another reason I love this chapter is because not only is this a vital part of our history as Gentiles, but also in this story, we get a detailed look at how individuals come to saving faith in Jesus. In this account, we learn why Christianity is worldwide, and we also learn the way in which God works in us individually to bring us to salvation. So, in thinking back to that conversation I had with that lady on why Christianity is, is worldwide and how and why a person like me came to saving faith in Jesus, we get answers to both of these questions here in Acts chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, you're not there yet, get there. Acts chapter 10. I have broken up this sermon into three parts. First, we're going to look at God choosing Cornelius. Second, we're going to look at God preparing Peter. And lastly, we're going to look at God orchestrating this encounter between these two men. Okay? So first, let's look at the choosing of Cornelius. God chose Cornelius. That's point number one. We've mentioned this over and over again in here, folks. Scripture is clear. Salvation is a work that God does. You cannot get away from this in Scripture. For salvation to occur, for God's kingdom to advance, He has to change our hearts and lives. We see this all throughout the Bible. We see this here in Acts chapter 10. Look at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Let's stop there for just a minute. Notice here, of all the people in this area of the world, this man named Cornelius is the focus. Why? Well, we're going to learn here in just a moment and later in this chapter that he is the one God is going to single out and set apart to save and he is going to be the catalyst for the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. God chooses him. He does this work in and through Cornelius here. 
And he uses Cornelius to open up the door to advance his kingdom to the non-Jews. But we're getting ahead of ourselves for right now. I want you to understand, God is initiating this work. Do you see that here? He's initiating this work with Cornelius. Now, who was Cornelius? We, we learn in verse 1 that he was from Caesarea and he was a centurion. Now, that means he was a leader of a hundred men. And he was a part of an Italian cohort. A cohort was a group of about 600 men. So Cornelius is one of six leaders of 100 men. We also learn here he was a very religious man. Look at verse 2. Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So on top of being a wealthy and influential, a powerful man, Cornelius was a very religious man. He was a very pious man. And it's very interesting. We, we, we find that Cornelius is not the only centurion in the scriptures shown in a favorable light. Have you ever thought about that? We have several mentions of centurions in God's kingdom story. Remember, we have the great faith of the Roman centurion that Christ highlights in Matthew chapter 8. We also have the great confession of another centurion in Matthew chapter 27. Remember, after Jesus' death and after the earthquake, a centurion said, surely this was the Son of God. I believe these accounts here in Matthew are, are foreshadowing a little bit of what's going to take place in Cornelius's life. We're getting a, a bit of a glimpse here into what's going to happen in this story through this centurion named Cornelius in Acts 10. We learn in this passage, Cornelius gave generously to people. He prayed continually to God. He was what was known as a God-fearer, okay? In this day, there were three kinds of non-Jews, three kinds of Gentiles in the mind of a Jew. There were just your plain old run-of-the-mill pagan Gentiles. There were the, there were the God-fearers, and they were the ones who had turned away from the pagan polytheistic beliefs and practices of their people, and they had decided to follow the God of Israel. They had decided that he was the one true God, and they prayed to him. They attended the local synagogues regularly for worship. And then there was another group who went all the way. They were circumcised. It's believed that the Jews had baptism in this day for the Gentiles who wanted to publicly identify with the Jewish people. So there's three different groups, and apparently Cornelius had not gone all the way like those in the third group, but he did believe and pray to the God of the Jews on a regular basis. He was faithful, and he was liked, well-liked by the Jews. He was similar to the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember, we talked about him in Acts chapter 8. God had already obviously been working in Cornelius' heart and life, and he was restless, folks. He had become jaded with the pagan beliefs of his own people. But notice here, he's still in need of salvation, right? He's not yet saved. That's why God sends an angel to him. Look at verses 3 through 6. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? 
And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. So we we learn here in verse 3 that one day, about 3 in the afternoon, which you'll remember back in Acts chapter 3, we said this was one of the three designated times of prayer for the Jewish people. So Cornelius, being the God-fearer that he was, was praying at a designated time for the Jews. And while he is, he is visited by an angel who tells him that God has taken notice of his prayers. He's taken notice. Notice of his benevolence. He says, your prayers and your alms have ascended to God. You found favor with him. Now, let's stop there for just a minute, all right? We need to camp out here for just a minute. Let me ask you this question. Was God responsible for saving Cornelius or was Cornelius responsible for saving himself because of his acts of generosity and his giving of alms? What do you think? Was God the one who saved Cornelius? Yeah, right? He was. Scripture clearly teaches that salvation is a work that God does, right? Yet though that's the case, Scripture also is clear that man does exert his will. Man makes real choices, and he is held responsible for those choices. Though though God is the one who chooses, though God is the one who changes dead hearts and and brings life to the spiritually dead, as we learn in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, man is responsible for what he does or does not do with Jesus. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. God's word teaches both. We are to affirm both. And how that works out, that's a mystery, folks. It is. It doesn't go against reason. It just goes way beyond our reasoning. But we see both here, don't we? We do. We see God singling out this guy for salvation, and we see this guy exerting his will and wanting to know what is true, and I believe God has been working in his life prior to sending his angel here, causing Cornelius to become restless toward the pagan beliefs of his people, and this man is open to know what is true because God has been doing this work, but notice he's not yet saved. That is key. Though Cornelius is a God-fearer, he is not yet a Christ follower. There were others in his day in the same boat. Though they were devout, though they were very religious, they were lost and in need. But notice God goes to Cornelius. He chooses him to be the one through whom his kingdom advances to the Gentiles. And you know what? This passage should encourage you and me. You know why? Because there are people in our world today who get all stressed out about those people groups on the other side of the world who have never heard. Listen, though we're called to go to them, though we're called to bring this great message of salvation to them, God is the sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present God. And He is at work in ways we cannot even see. Don't you see that here? He is at work 
in the lives of the hard-hearted and the misguided. And he is at work in his people, calling them and moving them to go and to share his message. We see all of that here in Acts chapter 10. Though he was going to use Peter to bring his message of salvation to Cornelius, God is at work in Cornelius before Peter ever enters the scene. And we're going to learn here in just a moment that God still has some more work to do on Peter before Cornelius' men get to him and before he has this encounter with them in Caesarea. But notice here, God is at work in Cornelius. He sends an angel to him to tell him to send men to Joppa to go get Peter. Now, why is Peter in Joppa? Why is he there? You remember? We talked about that last week. Remember, he was... He was doing ministry in Joppa. He had healed Dorcas in Joppa. And we're told that he stayed with a man named Simon, who was a tanner, and he stayed there for many days. And he was still there by the time this happens. And so this angel tells Cornelius to go get Peter. Now let me ask you this. Why did Cornelius need Peter? I mean, he had an angel. He had an angel with him. Don't you think this angel could have shared the gospel with Cornelius? You think the angel knew the gospel? Yeah. So why didn't he? Well, a couple of reasons. One, because scripture is clear, the primary way God has chosen to bring people to saving faith is through his people in the power of his spirit sharing his Word. Scripture is clear. God uses his people to share his message in the power of his spirit with people. You see that all throughout the Bible. You see that with the prophets in the Old Testament, and you see that with the apostles and the disciples in the New. And that's the means through which God wants Cornelius to come to saving faith. And that's why it's important that we're obedient believers to be witnesses for Christ. Because God has put people in your path who need to be made right with him through Jesus. And the way that happens is by you in the power of the Holy Spirit through God's word sharing the gospel message to them. But another reason God has this angel tell Cornelius to send Peter, send for Peter is because he wants Peter and the other Jews to witness this great work that he is about to do in and through Cornelius and in and through Gentiles so that the two, Jews and Gentiles, can move toward becoming one in Christ. So he wants these Jews to witness this great work he's going to do. But there's a lot of work still to be done as we'll learn in just a moment. But notice here, Cornelius is obedient. We're told in verse 7, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So notice, we, we learn here, with this encounter with Cornelius, we see that God has singled Cornelius out, he chose him, he's working in his heart and life, and we see See, Cornelius is exerting his will and showing a desire for the truth, and he responds by being obedient immediately. Folks, both are needed for salvation to occur. God has to do the work. God has to change hearts. He has to awaken us to faith, and we are to respond in faith 
to him in faith in Jesus. So that's the first part of this story. You have God's choosing of Cornelius and his response. Notice you also have the preparing of Peter. You have the choosing of Cornelius and you have the preparing of Peter. God prepared Peter. Look at verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So notice here, God spoke to Cornelius at the ninth hour while he was praying. And notice God speaks to Peter at another designated time of prayer, the sixth hour, around noon on the following day. Folks, do you see a pattern here? God deals with us in our time alone with him. Do you see that? Let me ask you a question. Are you spending time with God? Are you listening to him through his word? Are you responding to him in prayer? Listen, you want to be used in mighty ways by God? You want to grow in godliness? You want to get more plugged in in ministry? You want to be used by him? Do you have a desire to be used by him in fruitful ministry? Then you must make time to get alone with him. You must spend time with him. You must commune with him. You must do business with him daily. Look at verse 10. While he's praying, Peter becomes hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and God's going to play off Peter being hungry here. Look at this. Verse 11. And saw the heavens open, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. Says, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up once again to heaven. Notice, we've just looked at God dealing with Cornelius, and now we have him working on the other end with Peter. We learn here, God is preparing Peter to bring his gospel to the Gentiles so that he can open up the door and advance his kingdom there. Folks, God is hard at work. I'm going to make this point over and over again. I'm just going to hammer it home because it's so clear here. God is at work. He is working in the heart of Cornelius. He's getting Cornelius ready to receive his message. Now he is at work in his messenger, Peter, preparing him to take this message to Cornelius. Now he's got a lot of work to do with Peter here. There were a lot of barriers between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now Peter had come a long way, but he still had a ways to go, which is why God sends this great vision. Now why was ministering to the Gentiles such a hang-up for Peter. Well, we talked about this a little bit in the book of Ephesians, but you remember I said the Jews and the Gentiles, they they had a rocky past. They did. The wall that divided these two groups was high and wide and seemingly impenetrable. In that day, Jews did not care for the Gentiles in the least bit. I read in one commentary where it said there were some Jews who believed that God created Gentiles for fuel to use in hell. That's pretty strong feelings, isn't it? That's the way they felt. Peter was raised with these prejudices. They were pagan, 
They were polytheistic. They were uncircumcised. Remember, circumcision was a covenant sign of God's people in the Old Testament. The Gentiles were viewed as being unclean by the Jews because of certain activities that they were involved in that God, the God of the Old Testament, God in the Old Testament told them made one unclean. And they also ate things that God had told the Jews not to eat. And though Peter was beginning to see that the issue is really in our hearts, it's because our hearts need to be changed. Our hearts need to be, they need to be circumcised. It's our hearts that need to be clean. We see here, when it comes to the dietary laws, Peter still has some hang-ups. He still has some issues. Well, in this vision, Peter sees this sheet filled with unclean and clean animals. That word in the Greek used for animal here refers to a ceremonially clean animal. So there were some animals that were clean in here and they were mixed in with those that were ceremonially unclean. And God says, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter, in typical Peter fashion, trying to sound super spiritual, speaks against what God has said. And he says, by no means, Lord, sounds like when he was with Jesus, right? By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And Peter has in his mind, if they're unclean, mixed with clean, then the clean have been tainted. So it's all unclean. That's Peter's mentality. So in typical Peter fashion, he's saying, no, Lord, by no means. And then God, in typical God fashion, rebukes Peter, right? He says, what God has made clean, do not call common. Though these dietary laws and these other ceremonial laws and the act of circumcision were done initially to set God's people apart from the wicked nations that surrounded them, God was now showing Peter that the one who was able to unite them is far greater than what used to divide them. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying in this vision. The clean and unclean animals represent Jews and Gentiles. And they're all in together. And they're all taken up to be with who? With God. That's the point of this vision. God is getting Peter ready. He is showing him that in Christ, these barriers that used to divide Jew and Gentile all come crashing down but it's still a little difficult for Peter which is why he had to see this vision not once not twice but three times and the fact that it happens three times not only shows us the reluctance of Peter but it also emphasizes here for us the surety of God's word God through Christ is going to do this thing folks he is going to surely break down these barriers between Jew and Samaritan and Gentile and he's going to bring them all together He's going to make them all one in Christ. That's what Paul talks about in Ephesians. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. The two have become one. Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's made them one. That's what he's telling Peter here. As we said last week, there are a lot of barriers in place today due to prejudices in ministry. But God goes out of his way in his word to show he does not discriminate when it comes to race and social status and other things. We're told in Romans 2, Galatians 2, Ephesians 6, 
James 2, all throughout, he does not show favoritism. Jesus also exampled this for us. We talked about that last week. He ministered to Samaritans and centurions and Gentiles, tax collectors, Roman centurions, prostitutes, and and thieves. If this is true of God, if this is example by the Lord Jesus, why should we be any different in ministry? To minister effectively, to reach people for Christ, we got to let God do a work in us. You got to let those prejudices that you hold strongly to, based upon race and social status, you got to let those things die. Peter allowed God to change him. He, by God's grace, overcame these prejudices, and we learn in God's word that God used Peter in great and mighty ways to advance his kingdom in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and on to the Gentiles as well. So God's all over this work. He is at work in Cornelius. He is at work in Peter. And notice the third thing we learn here about this story, and this will be the last thing we look at this morning. We're going to talk even more about it next week. Not only did God choose Cornelius, not only did God prepare Peter, but notice God orchestrates this meeting between Peter and Cornelius. Look at verses 17 through 23. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, as Peter was thinking on these things, as he was trying to make sense of what had just happened, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. How awesome would that have been? (laughs) Right after this, he hears somebody call his name. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, these three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And then they told him the story. They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Folks, once again, I'm going to make this point again. God is all over this encounter. Is he not? He is. Right after receiving this vision of a sheet filled with clean and unclean animals, right after God says, what I have made clean, do not call unclean and common, Peter hears a group of Gentiles calling out to him. And then the Holy Spirit of God says to him, Peter, these guys are looking for you. Go immediately without hesitation because I have sent them to you. And Peter does just that. And he hears this story of this great work that God is doing in the heart of a Gentile. And we're told Peter invites these non-Jews into his home. Luke says he invited them in to be his guests. Folks, this did not happen in this day. It didn't. Jews did not entertain Gentiles. And Gentiles did not entertain Jews. But as we are going to discover next week, and as we talk more about this encounter, God, through the person and work of his son, 
through the power of his Holy Spirit, through the ministry of his apostle, is going to blow the doors wide open for his gospel to advance to the Gentiles. And after that, his gospel goes far and wide, here and everywhere, to Jews and to non-Jews all across the known world. And again, let me make this point again, just in case you haven't gotten it yet. God is doing this work. He is doing this work. We see that clearly here in Acts chapter 10. His work in the life of his chosen recipient of salvation, Cornelius, God is at work there. He is also at work in his messenger of salvation, Peter. And now we're seeing that he is bringing these two individuals together. Folks, God is all over this encounter. This is the way he works. This is the way people come to saving faith. Now, do they come apart from God's people sharing God's word? No. Do they do do people have to respond to the message of God's word? Yes. God's people are the instruments that he uses to bring people into the kingdom and people are saved by responding favorably to the message of the king, the Lord Jesus. But we see here and elsewhere that God is the one who changes hearts and lives. He is the one who draws people to himself. He is the one who calls for us to go and be his witnesses. He is the one who orchestrates this encounter so that people can hear his word and respond to it. And he is the one who opens hearts to him. And he is the one who awakens people to faith. It's so very important that we remember this as believers. Because get this, this affects the way we view and the way we do evangelism. This affects the way we pray for those in our lives who are without Christ. Though we make sure that we're prepared to represent Christ correctly and biblically and stand strong for him. Listen, we share knowing that God can and does do work through us, through the power of his word, through the power of his spirit, and he uses the foolishness of our words and the flawed efforts of our hands and feet to bring the hardest of sinners to repentance and faith. God does this. I hope that gives you boldness. To go out and represent him. To go out knowing, God, you're at work here. Working and through me. Change me, make me more like you. Working and through me. Maybe you're here this morning and you, like Cornelius, need to hear this message. Maybe, maybe you're similar to him. In that you're involved in the right kind of activity. You, you pray, you go to church, you give your money. To the church, you give your money to those in need, but you have not given your life up and over to Jesus. Listen, folks, I want you to get this. This is a point God makes all throughout his word as well. If Cornelius, as devout as he was, needed salvation, you need it. You need it. You cannot pray enough. You cannot go to church enough. You cannot give enough. There is nothing you can do by your own power to make yourself right with God. There is a way to be made right with Him, but it's not through you. It's through the one God has sent for you. It's through His Son, God the Son, the Lord Jesus. As we sang this morning, Jesus paid it all. He paid our debt. He took care of everything. 
He lived the perfect life we can never live. He met every requirement placed upon man. And he gave his life up for us. He was our perfect sacrifice. And after he died, we're told, he was raised for us so that we, through his life and death and resurrection, could be able to turn from sin and be made right with God, be forgiven and made right with him and be raised to walk in newness of life with him. And so if you're here this morning, and up to this point in your life, you have been trying your best to be made right with God without Christ, repent of that. Turn from that. Turn from going at life on your own. That's the sin of Adam. Turn from that sin. Give your life up and over to Jesus and be saved. Let's pray.